0: Quiver, New Weapons for Thought, post-Elysian political project that takes thinking to be an instrument of combat, unapologetically queer, feminist, anti-capitalist, and abolitionist. So, so excited to have everyone this week. We're sort of dealing with the issue of crowned anarchy, a term used by Deleuze and difference and repetition and picked up and utilized in so many different ways. And before we begin talking about our text for today, I want to just circulate the idea of a project that a few of us have been bouncing around, which is to do a writing uh, project that probably first be hosted on the internet, but then probably a book in which people would autonomously write short entries about concepts or weapons that we then collect very much under the sort of idea of the group quiver, you know, a quiver of intellectual weapons of thought. And then we probably need some light editorial process, but in general, it would be very much about enabling everyone to contribute what they wanted and that we would want some very minimal consistency between the ideas and concepts, but that they could go in very different, almost you know, given the one of the concepts for today, tactical directions where they don't have to cohere together. They don't have to be a generalized strategy. They can be very much almost like an encyclopedia or a guide or workbook or avant-garde exercises or inspiration, like the Fluxus workbook. I mean, there's so many different directions it could go. And so before we talk about the concepts today, um, maybe we could just get some feedback from everybody to hear if it sounded like a good project. And if so, what parameters might we wanna put in place to make it most productive for everyone, to make it doable, easy to contribute, um, but also achieve some of the uh, larger objectives uh, for the group in these conversations that we've been having.
1: Any thoughts or reactions?
2: I find this an amazing idea, but I I have told you also. And I think it would be very, very interesting to see the process uh, apart from the result uh, itself, uh, and I, I think that we have um, made here a, a a nice group of people. It's manageable. I, most of you, you know, have have presented something or will present something. So we are um, melding together somehow. So I think it would be a, a wonderful idea to to go forward. I don't know. What What are your thoughts? Jesse, like please. I was going to say, I like
3: this idea. My question would be, though, is how do we choose what the concepts are going to be? And how do we decide what is a concept that's like going to fit in this, is, is it better called an encyclopedia of Quiver? That's my contribution. That's all I got.
2: <laughs> that's something we can discuss, definitely.
3: I'm driving, so I, can, uh, I
4: can't raise my hand, but I'd jump in really quick and say, uh, I think that the the actual, the variety is what would make it so much more interesting than your average writing project, because we have people all the way from what seem to be fairly liberal, you know, social Democrats to uh, post-humanist nihilists in this group. So there would be a lot of ground to cover. And I think the juxtaposition, you know, rather, it would be somewhat like create a dissonance that you're not going to get in a lot of... Uh, you know, kind of quasi-academic projects. Uh, Just to get in here. um, A question that I would have would be, is the idea that this would be something that would be published in book form, or would something more like a wiki Wiki format, perhaps called Arsenal, I like that that idea, or Quiver, of course. would that be more in line with what you're thinking? Um, just a little bit more fleshing out of some where this where this is coming from, and uh, would I would appreciate that as someone who hasn't been able to make it to a
5: few of these in a while.
0: I think a lot of these are great questions, and we didn't make a lot of decisions ahead of time because we were hoping the group would sort of come to. Uh, an understanding or at least to have some ideas to bounce around to help sort of uh, determine which direction it might go. I would say, not that this answers anything, it maybe opens up more questions, but um, the more that we go in like a wiki direction, then it's very much about process um, that is always sort of open to amendment and can continue shifting and forming. And the thing about a book excuse me, is that it usually looks for a very specific product that then gets sort of put in print. And I think that in the conservation and archiving side of new media art, one thing that I've learned is that if you do something online, it can be very active for let's say up to five years or so. But after that time, um, all bets are off over whether or not it's going to be conservative in any way. And that a lot of really major projects um, degrade over time. Like just last week, I saw that because um, the ways in which, you know, Flash is no longer being supported in web browsers, like the University of Chicago's media theory, huge keyword project, which is like pretty, pretty decent. I really kind of like it for some of the stuff that I teach, not that it's terribly relevant to this group, but like it's gone. I mean, it's just like inaccessible to anyone who doesn't have flash access now. So um, if we do do something that's more open open oriented and process oriented, I would want to also set a time at some point to say, hey, we're going to take a snapshot of this, archive it somehow. And then, you know, even if we make it open to continue amendment, that we'll have some sort of um, version at some point. Hopefully that's not too in the weeds, but uh, I see Charlie, your hand up too.
6: i just clapped myself um yeah so um the, the first thing would be just regarding what you were just saying andrew the um and we want we would want it to be something that you know other people can use and discover and i feel like um in the short term that probably has worked well for a wiki but more longer term like you know people 20 years time they just they do a google search and they discover this thing pops up and they think oh these people seem interesting etc um that seems like something that would be possibly more feasible in, in form so just as a basic example you know I'm reading some invisible committee stuff and you know that was first written what 14 years ago and it wasn't around when it was happening initially at least so that was sort of more accessible now and um the second thing was in terms of the actual writing of it um obviously this this is there'll be degrees of differences anyway but um for you know someone who might be writing if i were writing i'd like to know kind of an idea of what the intended tone was because you know i so i'm doing a phd so i can i can write academic but can also write sort of blog form or fictiony whatever kind of you know it's not just write what you want because it what what i would want would depend on kind of what the context is so I, I would like to know what the what the tone intended tone would be, and obviously also like length and stuff like that. But that's more technical. Next.
2: Maybe this could be something that we also decide. I mean, as Andrew said before, um, there are no questions, uh, there are no decisions made. It, it is just an idea, and well, I guess that. Um, since you are a PhD student and you know how how you know sometimes the academic writing can be very very specific and it has different requirements maybe it could be something that it can be more more open to other audiences as well this is my suggestion but um, I don't know
6: I suppose the, the only just part of the thing about tone is that it Allows you to do different things. I, I guess we would want to avoid, you know, a lot of the stuff that we'd find in D and G studies, which is just sort of exegesis. But it can you, know, you can you can do very interesting things you can't do in other in other sort of fictional or journalistic forms. But yeah, I mean, it would. I don't know. I, I would probably certain things we're more comfortable talking in academic terms. Certain things more comfortable talking in journalistic or you know blog writing terms or whatever. Um, I don't really have anything to advance, unfortunately.
0: Looks like the next two people we have on stack are Gustavo and
5: then Jesse. Gustavo, we cannot hear you.
2: Feel not.
0: Let's move on to Jesse and then Brendan.
7: Sure. Yeah, I was just going to comment <clears throat> on the, the tone or style thing. I think that that would be an interesting conversation, maybe to have once there's, if there's like a, a subgroup or if we dedicate a quiver meeting to it. Um, and I'm thinking of like, if, if it is working with this idea of um, <clears throat> a quiver or strategies or tactics, then thinking of it like yeah, as, I liked your idea of more like a, a, like a manual or like a guide to, which would create a different kind of language and fictioning it a bit, like we could, you know become a, authorities for a minute on these things or at least write as such. Um, but I think the style, like playing with the style is what's interesting to me about it. Cause you can find some of the terms in glossaries or secondary literature, but to kind of like push it a little bit, um, I think would be neat. And uh, I would also be very interested in doing some illustration. I've, I've done kind of graphic guides before. And so I could, um, that would be cool. I'd be
5: personally interested in like some diagrams or, or things like that would be maybe neat, so yeah.
3: So if the problem is like, uh, like what's the style and how we get that working, I feel like a great way to start would be to have an introductory exercise of some kind where everybody just gets a, we get all get the same prompt, we all write it, we all post it, sort of in a place where we can all look at it or peruse it before a meeting. I don't know what do people think about that. Where would we, where would we use as sort of a place to put uh, like all of our writing together at once? Anyone have any ideas? Not a big internet guy to be honest.
0: (laughs) Uh, I could look into maybe using our web page for it. I mean, um, it's currently using a just a very specific proprietary um, content management system, but I can see what type of things it can host, like maybe a blog, or um, if not, I can install some other deployments or packages that could make it so people could easily collaborate and participate. Um, ideally, we could get away from like, the Google or the pre-made sort of ones in which you know, our big overlords have, have a lot of control over it. Um, it also raises the question of,
3: like, at least for the introductory exercise, would we want it to be publicly available or would we want it to be, like, privately available just for the group So while we, like, kind of figure out what we're doing?
0: Yeah, my, my guess would be initially we'd want it, like, um, available by link but not um, on the open internet, which is to say not crawlable and not not findable with people who don't have the link. Mm-hmm. Um, before, it looks like we've got a great stack going. I just want to say that um, inspiration that I have, and it's part just the environment that I currently live in and the things that have always motivated me. You know, I teach at a school where um, I have a lot of creative writers who work in the same sort of program as me. And our sort of shared interest between everyone in critical studies is, you know, sort of social and political concerns, but then those paired with formal experimentation, which is to say experimentation on the level of format and on style and on genre and um, type of writing. And so I'm always willing to push those directions, include fictional elements, make it kind of inspired by the historic avant-garde, which is something that I like as well. Everything from fluxes to the surrealists or situationists and everything in between. Um, But then also to realize what some of the limitations of those approaches have been. Um, And so anyway, that's the direction that I would push it, but I know that I don't want to overly put my stamp on the project and I want it to be very collaborative
6: for people. Um, Charlie. Yeah, sorry, th- this is just um, uh, responding to what you just said, Brendan, um, just as a, a practical thing. So the, the introductory exercise, that is, is that for us to kind of look at and think, oh, this works and this doesn't work, purely not as not something to publish, just as something to, for us to work out how to do this.
3: Um, and also to get a sense of how each of us writes, because obviously people's writing voices tend to differ a
6: little bit from their speaking voice um, and kind of and- see what comes out. Like and, that. and then to not delegate, but, you know, claim claim topics or offer or whatever, or whatever verb <laughs> you want to use, they all sound kind of bad. Um,
3: it sounds to me kind of like what we're doing is putting together like a collaborative encyclopedia. So an entry might be start with one person's voice and then switch to another person's and then back or t- to a third, etc. I don't know if people have any other ideas on form or content uh, for true. how it would work.
7: I think there's a, a few suggestions in the chat, one for the, like an online platform. Um, and then I think I like this idea, Brendan, of like kind of this non-proprietary writing, like maybe if there's some exercises we could do around that, this question of authorship. Cause that's another question, you know, do we take on different entries or do we actually write into each other so your voice is no longer yours, <laughs> um, which is something I'm super interested in. And I have a couple, uh, things I've done in the past. So um, I could even talk with Andrew and Dana about if, if you want someone to facilitate some exercises. Um, I'll put on my pedagogical hat, which is kind of my jam. And uh, I could help out with that to get us going if, if that's something people are into.
0: Sounds great. And I think we're naturally moving to sort of wrap this up a little bit for now. And then um move to next steps for people to sort of put in the work. So why don't people who are interested, I'm gonna put just the email in the chat in case you um, haven't done it before, but you know, it's the same email that you get your announcements from. This is quiver at gmail. If you're interested in like doing some of the really detailed, practical work, putting together the proposal and maybe starting a prompt and that sort of thing, please email that that email and then we'll just put together like a, you know, just a, I don't know, working group, even that's perhaps a bit too formal, but just like have some people bounce some ideas and and put the work in then we'll come back to you all um, with some proposals. And, you know, our email list too is maybe like 350, 400 people too. And so that means that perhaps we'll be able to get some collaborators in from the larger group who aren't able to meet us for the face-to-face conversations, but would be interested in writing something for us. No, no, know, we've got some uh, amazing writers in that mix too. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about the direction this could go. Any, any parting remarks or final things people want to say before we move on? Cool, and this is really exciting. And I'll say that, you know, it's maybe a little too early for this, but if people have ideas of, um, publishers to link up with, Um, that might be another thing that even if you're not going to be part of the group, we'd love to sort of hear your suggestions, especially if you have some personal connections or if you have strong opinions in one one direction or another. You know, personally, I was thinking one of the places that I've historically really liked for this kind of project would be the um, uh, minor compositions wing of Media. Um, just because they put out a PDF version of the book immediately and then they make it for sale, and they're very sort of DIY punk rock, but they've had a gr- amazing sort of history and connections. Um, so I don't know that's that's perhaps someone I'll reach out to. Stephen Shikaidas that. I'll, I'll I'll reach out to him at some point. Um, but if other people have other connections too, um, definitely, let us know. I have in Greece. Yeah, so so an, an international uh, versions of this would be really cool too. If we want to localize it and work between languages, um, obviously that's an even greater challenge. But perhaps might be incredibly rewarding, given sort of uneven development of these ideas and how certain places, um, you know, have really amazing cultures and and speakers and thinkers that sort of don't get the same exposure or interest. Um, I know that I was on a call with some Peruvians a couple couple weeks ago, who were just like, look, people just don't think and talk about Peru, even though it has this sort of great intellectual tradition. So in fact, I think I've persuaded some of them to give us a presentation, maybe in two weeks or maybe in a month's time uh, here too. Um, So they're going to go through Berkson and the but also Peru and everything that they're doing there. So, you know, it just sounds like amazing the more that we're able to engage other audiences in different ways.
6: Okay, I'm... Oh, Charlie? Question? Yeah, sorry. sorry. But this is just a really small thing. Um, when, we're, when we're sending an email to this address, would it be helpful or distracting if we put in, like, I have this experience, I'm interested in this, etc.? Or should we just say, register an interest and then talk about it later?
2: Whatever you want. We are reading them.
6: So... And yeah, okay. we know who
0: you are. Wonder what you thought. Okay, cool. Cheers. Uh, feel free. Right on. Okay. So it's it's our immense pleasure this week um, to have another presentation. And this week it's going to be with um, Harris, who initially proposed the Todd May reading, which we also paired with the um, Desarteux. And I don't think we need too much introduction, but saying that. You know, Todd May was one of the first people that I came to um, to Deleuze through because I was both interested in the anarchist dimension and really interested in the post-structuralism. And this sort of book and his approach has been around since, I don't know, the, the late 90s or so. It's, it's kind of where I, or late 90s, early 2000s, which is where I sort of um, got exposure to it. And I thought that it was just like a really novel um, formation. And then there was this sort of post-anarchism that was around for a bit for maybe, let's say 10 or 15 years. And it seems to have um, sort of diminished a bit. It seems like it's not a term that people are picking up as much and that it's, it's something that is ripe for reactivation or perhaps it's being picked up in other contexts and being reworked into something very new and very different. So it's an exciting time to sort of bring this up because it's very recent, but in some ways Um, not on trend or uh, en vogue, and so it's sort of this amazing opportunity to to look at it with fresh eyes. So without any further ado, um, thank you so much for your presentation, and we're going to hand it over to to
8: Harris. Thank you, Andrew, and um, hello, everyone. Um, actually, yeah, I, I May was the way that I came across Deleuze as well. So so this is quite interesting. Um, and, yeah, and another thing before I start is that the post-anarchism mainly developed by people like Saul Newman, that it's also interesting because it's, uh, you know, it's one banner, but there's so many different approaches. For example, I think that May's, if you look at May's original book, and then look at what Newman has been doing for the last couple of years, it's very different things, and they disagree on uh, many, many things. So this is, also the, this is also interesting as well, that you have post-structuralist anarchism and post-anarchism, and even as such a young phenomenon, so many different trends and strands within them. Um, but anyway, yeah, picking up also with a, with a short introduction before I get into the pages themselves about this book, uh, as, uh, as Andrew said, coming out in the late 90s. Um Todme's general thesis is that there's a, there's a convergence between post-structuralism and anarchism. And specifically, um, when he says post-structuralism, he means uh, people like Foucault, deleuze Guattari, and Lyotard. These are the sort of three groups that he examines. And uh, the, the main point is that, again, there's a connection between them. But also, in this sense, he crafts a new kind of anarchism, um, anarchism which rejects a lot of the assumptions of traditional anarchism. Um, and the, the reason, the reason why he thinks that traditional anarchism needs this kind of update, this new life through post-structuralism, is that he finds two faults with it. Um, he told me he advances two criticisms. The first one we won't look at today, but very briefly it's a critique of essentialism. It's the idea that a lot of the old the, the traditional anarchists, people like uh, Bakunin, Kropotkin, Proudhon, in many cases they seem to harbor an, an essentialism of human nature, whereby humans are inherently good, they're kind, they're altruistic, but then you get all these social systems which sort of alienate them from this essence. Um, and therefore, you know, the implication being, as soon as we remove these systems, as soon as we remove the state and capitalism, et cetera, people will revert to this kindness, to this altruism, to this uh, to this essence. Um, this is the first problem. Todd May sort of attacks this through the post structuralist critique of uh, essence and of the subject. Uh, we also look at the subject in our second meeting, so this is an interesting connection. But uh, today we'll be, we'll be focusing on the second problem. And specifically, uh, he accuses uh, kind of a traditional anarchism of a kind of reductionism, whereby all, all kind of um, often, once again, these are not um, very consistent. These critics are not consistent in traditional anarchism. It's not that they always say this, but they often appear to slip into a mode where they say that every kind of oppression ultimately refers back to the state, ultimately stems from the state. So they seem to assume that there is one center of power and oppression, and that removing this will solve everything. And this is kind of a tra- transition to the, to the pages in, uh, in our readings, um, because Todd May brings, and I think this is uh, what I mainly want to talk about today, the, the kind of dichotomy between a strategic political philosophy and tactical political philosophy. And again, the criticism here of reductionism goes to traditional anarchism as a strategic political philosophy. So a strategic political philosophy essentially involves unitary analysis towards a single goal. It assumes that there is one center of power. There is a, there's something in the middle which causes, determines uh, all the rest, uh, all the rest relations of power, relations of oppression. Uh, Todmei gives a really interesting space elements it is a series of concentric circles. You, know, you start from something in the middle and then you move on in the periphery. But whatever is at the periphery is determined by what is at the center. And therefore, a fundamental characteristic of this kind of uh, political elements, of strategic political philosophy, is uh, reducibility. Everything can be reduced to this one center. More critically, we could say uh, reductionism. And the example that, uh, that Todd May gives, he has an entire chapter in this, is uh, Marxism. And uh, as I'm sure you're all aware, Marxism is an interesting case because in some of its formulations, this is made explicit through the notion of a base and a superstructure. Um, you know, as I'm sure you're all aware, the, the concept here is that there is an economic base which determines societal factors. And from this base, um, the various from this mode of production, the very superstructural elements flow. And these superstructural elements can be things as the state, um, law, Gender relations, race relations, ideology, practices, culture, ethnicity, etc, etc. In the end, or in, in Altuser's formulation, in the final instance, all these social structures and uh, all the other relations of oppression are determined by the economic base. Uh, and this is not only true of social structures, in some cases, again, some formulations of Marxism, this is also true of historic events. So the idea here would be that a change in government or a revolution even ultimately refers back to a shift in class relations, to a shift in the base and the productive base. Um, Another example, and uh, as as, uh, I started with, can also be traditional anarchism, which in some cases assumes that all power and all oppression stems from the state. And therefore that removing the state would also rid us of uh, capitalism, of sexism, of racism, Etc. Um, we can also think of liberalism. Traditional liberalism also assumes that all power stems from the state. Although, of course, the difference here with traditional anarchism is that for liberalism, it's not all oppression; it's all power. Um, it's uh, the liberals generally really like the state. They say it as a necessary, um, as a necessary force, and all power stems from it, but not oppression. Um, traditional anarchism is the reverse. So this is a kind of strategic political elements and. Um, Todd May attacks this, he thinks it's inaccurate. I'm sure you can already begin to see why it's inaccurate. He also thinks it's dangerous, and I'll get to that in a bit. But before I get to, to its political implications, um, just a couple of words on the tactical, the, the other image that he offers, the tactical political philosophy. So instead of the series of concentric centric circles, um, in tactical political philosophy, May gives the image of an intersecting network of lines. There's no one center, Um, power is irreducible, relations of oppression are irreducible, they're just various lines um, and various sites of power, various lines of power. And these may stay autonomous, this is very rare, but they may stay autonomous as as in two parallel lines, which never intersect, never cross. They may intersect and produce kind of uh, novel and different structures of power, different structures of oppression, different identities. They may also diverge, two lines of power may diverge, and you might get a very interesting situation where advancing uh, struggle against one type of domination might actually uh, aid another um, type of domination. And this is, um, this is, I'll, I'll get back to this, I'll, I have some questions for the end, i will get back to this. Um, in any case, you have multiple axes of power and oppression, um, and these intersect generally, but they also remain distinct. Uh, they remain irreducible, each keeps its distinctiveness, and one does not subsume the other, as the strategic political philosophy might have it, as the base might subsume the phenomenon of the superstructure. But This does not mean that there, there are no points of concentration of power or of oppression. Todd May says this, you might have bolder points. To, to stick with a spatial metaphor, this would be where various lines intersect. So if you can imagine lines, when so many lines intersect, they produce a bolder point, a dense point, a node. Um, and these are you know, generally concentrations of power. We can imagine capitalism, we can think of the state as such a concentration. But fundamentally, as May says, power does not originate from these dense points, rather it conglomerates around them. It coalesces in them and therefore produces, produces them. So if if Marxism and traditional anarchism and traditional liberalism are examples of the strategic political philosophy, um, I would say that some some examples of this uh, this tactical political philosophy would be intersectional feminism, some strands of realism, although realism is not critical, it's mainly mainly descriptive, but uh, it's very good when you're doing a descriptive analysis, it's very good for keeping things sort of separate, seeing their distinctiveness. Um, again, again, realists would never say uh, oppression. It's, uh, they're a bit allergic to words like that, which are normatively charged. And in this case, uh, post structuralism, and specifically post structuralist anarchism. And moving on now to the, to the kind of political implications of its uh, type of political philosophy, um, because what Todd May says is that they, they mobilize certain relations of sociality, they mobilize certain forms of political organization, certain modes of subjectivity. And this is very interesting because his fundamental point here is that strategic political thought is not only—it's not only inaccurate; it's also dangerous. Specifically, uh, the dangerous implications of this point is that if there is one center of power, if there is one core problematic, uh, one central site of power, then we can imagine that there are those who are particularly well placed to analyze this one core problematic, and therefore to lead the resistance against it. And in this case, in this sense, strategic political philosophy uh, often leads to vanguard organizing, often leads to a mode of sociality, whereby some, a very particular class or group of people, are specialists on what on the center of power or the center of uh, society, and therefore are, are the ones who lead. And the example that May gives again here is uh, Marxism, which from the 19th century and on, has actually, in most cases, mobilized this kind of model of sociality, whereby you have the intelligentsia, you have the, the class theorists, the, the philosophers, who also tend to be part of the, of the economic elite, um, and who can transcend the mystifications of capitalism, who have immediate access to the, to the core problematic, to, to the mode of production and how this is organized, to the, to the truth of the dialectic of history, and therefore they can shatter the the false consciousness um, which which prevails among the the working classes, among the majority of the oppressed. And uh, this means implication of this is that they should lead the vanguard, this image of the avant-garde, the vanguard goes before and drags the rest into consciousness, into struggle and into history. And again, this stems from from the kind of ontological assumptions. If there is one side of power, we can imagine that there is one group with access to it. Conversely, um, tactical political philosophy rejects this assumption. Uh, Because if if power is uh, decentralized, uh, if the sites of oppression are numerous, if they intersect, if if power is dispersed, then it's not very likely that there will be be one group of individuals, of of specialists, of intelligentsia, um, who have access to this and who therefore take the role of the vanguard who therefore lead the people into change. And uh, I, don't, I don't want to go to, into the second text too much here, but I found a really interesting connection with Deserteau here, because it seems to me that this kind of difference in mobilizing and difference in producing organizational forms and modes of, uh, of sociality is exactly what uh, Deserteau sees as strategy versus tactics specifically and it's interesting because they both use spatial images you know Todd May with his lines and circles and the Chirteau with the organization of space in the city etc. Um, specifically strategy uh, it starts from a place and it says this is, this is my place you know it stakes out a territory and from this territory per de it conducts relations of exteriority with uh, with friends and foes with allies and enemies. And above all the Chirteau says that it dominates using the power of knowledge. And for me, this is completely aligned with the vanguard, because uh, the vanguard's power, um, it stems from its knowledge of the one core problematic, but conversely, uh, in order to determine and convince people uh, of its own authority and that this is indeed the one problematic, it needs some sort of social power, the, the social economic power afforded to it by its, um, its, um, you know, its uh, social class as intelligentsia, as intellectuals. And I think the, the kind of power knowledge that Foucault identifies is really strong in the case of the vanguard. Conversely, once again, the kind of uh, practice, the kind of political practice mobilized by tactical political philosophy would be tactics, which starts as per, Certeau, as per de Certeau from the absence of a proper locus. There is no one center of power. There is only dispersion amongst lines of power, and therefore, rather than seeking to overturn this one structure, to overturn this one center, you know, to change the mode of production, and then the rest can follow, or to follow the Vanguard and organize, and then the rest can follow. Um, tactic uh, operates in isolated acts. Uh, Sartre says it operates blow by blow. It uses opportunities. Um, it seeks to create stoppages in the various lines of power. To see, to see when a crack. Manifest itself and to seek to lodge something in the crack and therefore produce a stoppage in the operation of its respective line of power. And again, for me, the most interesting thing is that uh, these different modes of sociality, these different types of political and social organizing, uh, they stem from the differential ontological and epistemological assumptions of strategic political philosophy and tactical political philosophy. In a sense, we can see how tactical political philosophy um Guards against the potential oppression of the vanguard um, I don't want to tire you too much. Uh, I've already said a lot, I think, but I have some questions for discussion. I have three questions and things we, we might think about. Um, the first one is more specific. it relates to the to and Gotari and, and all of these are things that you know really trouble me as well so I'd be love to hear I'd love to hear your thoughts. The first one relates to the and Gotari and the question is whether they're actually consistent. Um, with the tactical model, whether they they remain consistent to tactical political philosophy. Because on the one hand, um, it seems that they do, on the one hand they, and Todd May says this as well, they seem to speak of mixed regimes, of, uh, of things having a relative autonomy and then cooperating and changing. On the other hand, I've seen them uh, occasionally slip into a kind of regressive Marxism, whereby capitalism now um, in some way uh, has, has uh, infested everything and kind of determines everything and specifically an example here is I remember in our conversation our second meeting um, we talked about the state and an example here would be uh, perhaps the state for the losing watari which at some points appears as now uh, only a model of realization for capital so it seems to have lost its autonomy so this is the first question are the losing Watari consistent with the tactical image the second question a bit more interesting, is uh, whether we can think of some of the instances when lines of oppression diverge, and therefore when resistance to one axis of oppression might actually mean upholding another. So for instance, uh, you know, when fighting sexism or fighting racism, um, when does this fight actually entail upholding capitalism in the state? When? When the, When is the reverse true? When is the fight against capitalism in the state? When might this involve actually advancing under relational oppression and uh, h- how do we think about these cases um, you know how do they make us feel what do we do about them do, do we accept this as a complication of the social do we reject this and say that actually it is possible to fight against all oppressions at once and uh, and to, to undo this divergence this is my second question and uh, third finally uh, perhaps more reflexively um, I, I wonder sometimes if there is not something missed by, by this kind of tactical political philosophy, um, if there is not something uh, also risky about it. Because on the one hand, of course, it saves us from the, from the risks and from the dangers of strategic political philosophy. It, it guards against the vanguard. But then on the other hand, you know, I do wonder whether in an age of, uh, of increasing fragmentation, um, whether, whether we should not be pushing for more unity what I'm trying to say is that is there not something demobilizing um, in arguing that all these axes of oppression are ultimately distinct? Um, You know, in an age where where the powers that be are trying to keep the different social movements um, separate from each other and to prevent their coalescence or organization, is there not something demobilizing in arguing that uh, the struggle Against the, the different struggles against this axis of oppression are ultimately distinct. That struggle in one sphere might not involve struggle in others. But at the same time, is this not uh, you know, obviously true? Is this not an accurate depiction of, uh, of social reality? Um, yeah, so I was wondering how, how we might deal with this kind of uh, problematic. And um, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And uh, thank you all for your time.
0: Harris, thank you so much for your brilliant presentation. I mean, I think your second and third questions are the ones that really sort of interest me the most. Um, Maybe I'll begin with the third one and then go to the second one, just sort of jumpstart the conversation. So on your third question about the risks, I think that this is something that is still a uh, pressing problematic. I don't think it's been resolved. I think there have been a lot of bad faith entries within this debate. So historically, let's say the Gramscians of the world have all been about building power and they think of themselves as like social Democrats and doing it in a sort of, I don't know, almost sort of grassroots like sort of way for it to be really sort of simplistic about their presentation. And so for them, it was always about starting with the molecular or the lines or the decentralized. But for them, the goal was already a sort of form of centralization. And, you know, we saw this with the La and move in the 1980s, which was all the rage then, and I think still remains a sort of dominant model for social democratic approaches to politics, in which they said, look, there are a lot of different lines of political struggle, but underneath there can be a shared logic that could be built out of them, if not already one that already exists. No doubt La and move, generally already took the altuzarian position that in the last instance, it was all about class struggle. And so if you just sort of reorient all the struggles through the modality of class, and suddenly they could all find a sort of common interest there. I've been deeply suspicious of this. And so I think this is sort of a challenge. And so I think One of the even just sort of conceptual issues to begin with is if you were to appeal to more unity, how, why, on what basis, what is the new term in which you'd sort of build together as the common interest for all of it? And if it's simply democracy or even social issues or even identity politics, to say that everyone who takes an identity politics shares some sort of interest, I think we already know what the sort of conclusion to it might be. And so the anarchist approach, I think, is more than just sort of building a model and I think it actually has a way that it's been practically lived out. There's this example from David Graeber that I really like in which he says that splits that happen within anarchist groups, particularly where anarchist groups, let's say we're trying to build consensus. You know, This is not the model that I prefer, but it's one that I find myself in sometimes just because of you, know, you work with who's around you a lot of the time. Um, you know, There are sometimes groups that can't build consensus. And so there are people who leave or people who create their own groups because they want to have their own way. And Graeber, as an anthropologist, looked at it and said, you know, what if this is a feature rather than a bug? What if it's a benefit for anarchists who, when they find out that they can't work with other people, instead of just quitting the game and going home, which would happen if you were, let's say, a party person, especially like a... You know, into the Democratic Party or something in the United States, or, you know, I guess trots do this sort of thing too. So there's that whole joke about, you know, uh, two trots, three parties, or three positions. Um, but that, you know, anarchists kind of do this too, and they sort of split off and do their own work. And, and for Graeber, he thought that this was like a multiplication of movement and action and force. You just get more people when they find a sort of disagreement of where they can't work together, they'll continue and this could sort of proliferate and grow. And so, you know, I think that's kind of interesting, which moves to, I suppose, um, our second point a little bit, which is, look, if there's fragmentation, there are different lines, there's a point in which this sort of proliferation approach benefits some people, perhaps at the expense of others. And I think it's no doubt like feminist intersectionality is like a good place to start from. But I think that you're absolutely right that the thing that intersectionality, or at least the popular version of intersectionality, that um, let's say sort of like moderate leftists or even people who are ostensibly radical leftists but aren't doing a lot of on the ground work, end up doing is they're like, oh yes, of course, our struggle can be anti-capitalist, pro-black, you know, decolonial. You know, they list all off, and it's all the things, and they all happen together at the same time in the same way, and it's like, you know, have you not? actually done any work on the ground, like you'll know that sometimes when you work with one campaign, you're going to piss off other factions and that that their interests will sort of come in conflict at a certain point. And I think that's revealed by certain positions who I think are honest about what it, the political stakes of their projects might be. This is something I think was hugely scandalous with um, Afro-pessimism when it started becoming popular, because they sort of take this to a very strong dimension and they say things like, Feminism in the United States has always been about giving white women power and in particular white women legal power to own things as property, which has historically been Blacks as slaves. And so they're saying they have no common interest with the mainstream feminist movement. Full stop. People are just completely and utterly scandalized by that statement. or they find other areas in which they say, we just have no interest in working with these people because at the end of the day, their vision for progress or change is something that goes against what their ultimate interests are. And so I think the contemporary take on this has been the sort of destitution school coming from the Agambenians, but remember it initially came from Argentina in which they said, we seek zero power because when you seek any power, it's always going to prioritize one group or one position over others. And so the idea is to destitute all forms of power aggressively and all of it. And I think that opens up a whole different set of problems, but I think that it resolves some of these sort of intersectionality issues that come up of, you know, just sort of thoughtlessly trying to knit all of them together without much, much criticism. Anyway, I feel like I've gone on a bit, so. Um, Hopefully that helps jumpstart some some ideas on these conversations. Um, let's let's hand it over to Jesse.
5: Your microphone, Jesse. Hi. <laughs>
7: um, I'm gonna try and riff off of what you were saying, Andrew, at the end around power and control, and try and maybe present an example um, that Harris was asking of this kind of like divergent lines um it goes in a slightly different direction uh but maybe there's something here um so i I mentioned I, i just finished teaching a course on environmental feminisms and social justice so these these questions are huge to many of these students who are in a women and gender studies program where there are many different i guess flavors of feminism um at at work and we are trying to really you know think about this question of non-human relations uh, a certain kind of like um divestment of a subject uh, in certain ways and thinking about like ethical relationality what that means what it looks like and so one of the examples i think of uh that's maybe interesting a concrete one uh rather or rather a, a plastic one is of plastic pollution and how um We've been talking about it in relation to this question of control and power and resistance. So in the mainstream, you know, there's lots of fights, fights against plastic pollution that uh, come out, whether it's ocean cleanups or, you know, p- plastic straw bans and all these kinds of things. Um, but you looking at people like Heather Davis uh, and others uh, who look at the way in which plastic has now kind of entered the ecosystem Um, To the point that, you know, well, we all have plastic inside of us, all of us here, Um, but also it's it's kind of main characteristic is that it retains its identity in almost all situations. So this is why it's so hard to degrade and to um, it, it kind of on the one hand is pervasive and everywhere, but it also... It, it retains its, its, its identity. And I'm thinking here of like the example that, um, uh, sorry, who said it? Kiyoshi said of the, the Go and chess um, example that Deleuze and Guattari also write about. And what I remember about that is that in chess, the players retain their identity at all times. Whereas in Go, um, there's like a, the pieces take on different identities depending on the relations that they're in. And so thinking back to plastic and thinking especially about resistance, um, the students had a hard time and I have a hard time wrapping around my head. It's like to fight back against this problem of, of plastic uh, is, you know, it's actually more destructive to do something like clean up the ocean floors for some species because there's now all these new organisms who are, who are, are found on these plastics and scientists don't know whether it's because they feed off of it or if it's ideal conditions for it and so one of the things that Heather Davis talks about is, is like how do we develop a kind of like ethical relationship with plastic you know because it's not going away um, and so all of this is to say I think there's something here about these like the resistance in this case kind of took it in a different direction against pollution um on the one hand the state reinforces this through like allowable limits and regulations or non-regulations but even if you get rid of the state plastic remains like uh, I don't know do you know what I mean I I don't know if this is hitting somewhere so there's like this this relationship still with the sociality between myself and plastic that I have to figure out how that's going to you know work into the future and we mean like hundreds of thousands of, I don't, they don't know how long plastic's going to be around, but it's, you know, predicted to be a long time. So those relationships are very real. So maybe there's a, a materialist kind of um, uh, thing here, but then we get into all sorts of questions around vitality. And maybe the question that we end with is like, what lives are worth living, which I think the Afro-pessimist argument kind of asks too. Those are many divergent lines. I was really trying to be tactical there. So thanks for listening.
1: Uh, I wanted to f- thank uh, Harris for your clear presentation. Uh, I just wanted to say that in the last few days I, I posted two links uh, called Exterminate the Brutes, I guess that it came out on HBO. And I think it actually encapsulated probably 12 books that I've been reading about uh, the idea of uh, uh, colonization, post-coloniality, and decoloniality. But mostly the idea is that um, if generations of people are born into a system, it's like water. How do you get out of the system? And then I was thinking about the readings this week. <laughs> and with the Dish or Toe and um, Space and both articles, I really had the... Um, it really hit home on the idea of, if you're born in a system and you're doing everything because someone expected you to do it, you don't even question power, you don't even question the language or anything, then what are the, what are the ways that you can uh, evade? Uh, is it creativity? Is it creativity uh, based on the things that you've learned previously of this dominant culture of control? How, how do you make a, a complete break? And um, so I think one of the things I started to think about are tools. Like, how do you make tools and identify what's really happening? So I think maybe there's two two ways to think about it. Uh, the idea of the the four-part documentary is that it made a picture. And the picture wasn't really put together in a way before that put two different ideas together of indigenous histories and then uh, slavery. But now that they're together, we have a picture. Can't we make a, you know, uh, a tactical strategy? Can't we make a unitary understanding of, hey, this is a problem now. Why can't we speak about it openly? So I think I'm starting to really come to terms with what is the language that we can use? and. And and politics, it's only perpetuating existing power structure. How can we make a complete break? So I I would encourage maybe for the creative portion, maybe kind of a speculative future or understanding of how we can make a complete break because I can't even imagine it. And uh, you know, I've been in the arts and design now for decades, and I'm at a loss. And sometimes I feel like I'm drowning because I don't really know. Uh, when I talk to people, they go, why are you talking about this? You can't do anything about it. And uh, I'm curious, why am I talking about it? I, th- I think that maybe that's the only way we can move forward to, to maybe solve the idea of ecocide or the existential crisis of the planet. Uh, anyway, those are my thoughts, but thank you very much.
5: I was just going to respond to Alfonso,
7: um, just because I think it it relates back to something that again Heather Davis writes about, and that is perhaps the the language of break or a clean break is itself kind of wrapped up in some of the the ways in which we've we've come to think in a more strategic sense about finitude or like an essentialist like the, their like either going back to something or, or or kind of cutting relations, which is arguably, you know, what's got us here in the first place. So she proposes, she draws on Elizabeth Pavanelli to talk about, instead of finitude, this kind of like this metaphor of finitude um, of, of extinguishment and how like, you know, for certain lives to thrive, other lives are extinguished necessarily, or like what, and what is that relation between kind of, uh, between these kinds of, um, living systems so I don't know I just thought about that when you were talking to Sava about this question of breaking or like a break from something I think and other people have written about this too um that and language like that this language too kind of maybe holds some of those those things that that Harris kind of really nicely pulled out the differences between um strategy and, and tactics so
0: now, I think this problematic in particular is one that really interests me about sort of the limits of post anarchism. So, just to reiterate, it's this question of like on the one side, we have an image of revolutionary transformation, and that if we really take it uh, truly and honestly, which would mean taking it perhaps even past what Marxists or even communists have thought about it, it doesn't mean it means going beyond the models of sovereignty that we've inherited. So like Foucault in History of Sexuality says that, you know, even though we've uh, thought that we've gotten rid of monarchy, we still have not yet cut the head off the king, which is to say the structural position that sovereignty inhabits within our images and models of power still exist. And so to use the example that we used previously, we still think of politics as a game of chess, where it's about cornering and capturing the king, the enemy's king, and then replacing it with our own. And then if we do that, suddenly everything that has been bad can be turned to good because rather than our enemies being in power, we'll be in power and we'll know it's fine taking over a pre-existing system because that system can be made to uh, exist in the way that we want it to, which is what the sort of like most... Ludicrous, small-minded um, Leninists, or even Stalinists might think, where they think the state is just an expression of class relations, and so if they take over the state, then uh, they can remeld it or, 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 or transform it into a more useful picture. Now what's funny is, even if you read Lenin on State and Revolution, he says, "Yeah, we still need to get rid of the state, too," which, you, know, I don't know a Leninist who's ever gotten rid of the state, but you know, I'm, I'm a little digressing a little bit here. Um, so, but the, the nice thing about that model is it's decisive, or that it thinks that there can be a complete transformation, which is something I still desire. I still want this. I'm, I'm so in love with this. It is something that I don't wanna give up Give up on. Um, and so some of the anthropologists, I'm thinking of Viveros de Castro, in addition to someone like Pavanelli, started thinking not just in terms of a state as something that needs to be captured captured in the sovereign sense, but a whole culture or even a metaphysics, which they say would be a cosmology. So how do we change our whole way of seeing the world as well as the world itself? So for me, the place where I see this these days is uh, apocalypse and apocalyptic thinking. So I think that that's much different than the sort of seizure of the state. of approach. I think the problem is if we go too much in the just general tactical direction that we get in some post-anarchism, is it assumes a few things. It says we're always going to be fighting on a terrain that we can't control, so we have to use the colonizer's language, that um, all we can do is fight little acts of resistance. And I think you know, just the more I've read and the more I sort of sat with this and, you know, lived it and, and used it as a guiding principle for my actions for a lot of the time, I feel like it gives really cheap satisfaction where you get your ass beat by the cops on the street or you work a single issue campaign where you're able to save one person's house from eviction or something. And everyone pats themselves on the back. They say, God, we really confronted capitalism today. Whereas in the time that it took to do all of that organizing, capitalism itself continued to shift and change. You know, you get one person kicked out of office and some new asshole comes in in their place. And it's like, have we really made much change in the subject? Or is this just a compensatory way to make ourselves feel good that we've just rearranged a few things in a larger system of power that just keeps on going? So I think for me, that's the largest challenge of the tactical that sometimes it seeds so much to the already existing structure or form of power or system that it makes itself satisfied to only make small acts of resistance that often are just sort of compensating that um, it doesn't tackle the, let's say, larger issues, though I'm not sure it's even necessarily a question of scale, but it's just that it, it doesn't, doesn't seek to challenge more than it, than it could. That's my sort of entry right now.
4: And just jumping in again, since I can't uh, raise my hand, I, I agree with you, Andrew, that, uh, you know, many, many anarchists certainly that take this sort of attack mentality, uh, I do think it's, it's very much an instant gratification thing, and it's on the lazy side. Uh, but perhaps like, the only lazier attitude to have would be the, you know, quote unquote, revolutionary attitude that, you know, we're going to change it all, but it's just not time yet. So we need to wait until it's time. Uh, and I can't help but feel that that often we're idealistic anarchists, as, as well as, you know, Marxist of many stripes, kind of fall into that same trap. that it, it, It's just never quite time yet. It, it's not quite time for the revolution, but we've got to get ready because when it comes, it's going to be big and it's the only way to go. Uh, and where both these, both these kind of viewpoints, I think, fall in, and back to Harris's questions, is that this whole notion of unity or this notion of some sort of a global or even you know, national level of change, it's, it's, it's a platonic ideal, like it's abstraction. So we can create as many categories as we like, uh, but that's precisely what capital wants us to do. That's precisely what the state and any formation of power wants us to do is to create these kind of abstracts that we can fit ourselves into so we can each have our own identity and feel some sense of that easy satisfaction. Uh, The hard thing to do would be to walk away from the system altogether. The hard thing to do would be to reject that kind of idealistic thinking. Um, And personally, I mean, I I find it very, uh, I'm a very pessimistic person, but it gives me some optimism to hear Jesse talk about with her class, the, the, the situation of plastics. Uh, because I think the environmental, uh, the environmental situation is a, is a perfect example of this, that we need to save the planet. And I, I guess what kind of an arrogant anthropocentric statement is that? that Like our species is oriented in a position to save the planet or even that we've been the ones that have, you know, done all of this damage to it. Uh, when I, I think most of us know enough about the Earth's history to recognize that the vast majority of the Earth's existence is, uh, It has supported life on nothing more than a microbial state. Uh, We're simply not that important and things will go back the way that they were eventually. All of those plastics came from the earth and someday the plastics will go back to the earth. But this, this recognition that we must accept things where they're at. We're not living in a world of ideals. uh, And we do need to take action in ways that are mostly relevant to us in our daily lives. I think that's where for me, tactics is really all that there is. And if we're each acting tactically, then you would imagine that, we can do more than we could in any other way, because it's precisely the, you know, the, the replicate the replication, the reproduction of society that keeps us in this endless feedback loop. So, you know, the revolutionary needs the oppressor and vice versa. The fascist needs the anti-fascist. I think that's the most, uh, in this moment for me, that's kind of the easiest example to look to for where we are in this situation. Uh, anti-fascists and fascists are you know they they wear a a different colored mask maybe but aside from that I see very little between the two groups uh and their kind of intellectual orientation to the struggle that they engage in uh and again that circles right back to what Harris was saying I I think that the idea of of any sort of any sort of identity uh, identitarian approach or even really uh totalitarian approach of visualizing a unity to build a strategy on is uh, I I don't it's it's somewhat comical uh, but it makes a lot of sense because I, I guess you know people
0: like to believe in something right great and I saw a lot of hands up to Chloe and then Harris and Brendan so why don't we start with you Chloe Yeah, please go, uh,
2: Chloe, if you would. Um, uh, Chloe, please, please go, go on. But uh, your your mic is is, is off. Uh, Chloe, the microphone is off.
9: Well, I, I I I should like to put another point, and I'm very aware that it may seem a little affective, because comes from an older generation, uh, lived in May 68 uh, and the revolution abroad and the Zapatistas movement and everything else. So, my question is, if the productive forces are understood to mean uh, those of nature broadly not only of the humankind, should we say goodbye? once and for all, to the saisonalytic materialism revolution, completely remove the the inevitability of revolution, as we thought in the older generations, and if we should understand that it is a matter of nature and that we should keep the reproduction of the molecular unconscious from the one, and from the other decide that revolution nowadays means a distraction, that we can avoid distraction. In, the, in Go, there is a constant distraction that never issues, that never becomes obvious, but if the chess is a, a royal game where where the king wins, and the, the people loses, go is about a an eminent destruction, a distraction on wood that is coming. So my question, my point is that probably we should think the we should think the way to understand for not say goodbye to revolution once for all, to understand that revolution may may become the destruction of the old in every, in every way. Many people in Greece asked me about the book of Andrew, if it does mean literally that uh, the, the destruction disrupt everything, disrupt the, the buildings, the civilization, everything at all. So this is a very interesting point because it has to do with the molecular unconscious. If, we, if the destruction abolishes the mechanical uh, subconscious, unconscious, is one thing, and it's another thing if that distraction is virtual and not actual. So we have to face, and finally, we will face it, if the destruction is actual, will be actual, or if the destruction will, will remain forever, virtual, and we can say goodbye to any revolution at all. So it's something that would, we, if, if, we, if, if we play go, we must know that finally we will consider, we will meet this situation. Distraction, virtual or actual. That was my point. And thank you very much for listening. Yeah, if I can uh, pick
8: up on that. Uh, great, great points, everyone, first of all. Um, but yeah, on the point of uh, molecular destruction or virtual destruction, I think this is uh, what I would respond, uh, the way I would respond to, to Andrew's uh, first point about, you know, um, letting go of the strategic uh, clean break with everything, the complete transformation and keeping on to this sort of, smaller, uh, in quotation marks, uh, movements and actions, because in the sense, again, in, uh, in the molar level, they might seem smaller, um, refusing, let's say, you know, keeping one, one person in their apartment or whatever, but they may release, and we can never know this, the, 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 the energies of desire that they may release may be completely, um, completely out of scale. They may be massive, they may be huge, and they may be uh, contagious as well. So, so in this sense, uh, I really like to think of it, you know, in the two levels, the molar and the molecular, and once again, the virtual and the actual. The destruction of the virtual level might express itself in something that seems very limited in the actual, a kind of tactical small action, where you find yourself, you know, in your place of action. But then going, going to, what I think something, something brilliant, Jesse asked on the chat, um, what is the time of strategy and tactics? And I think that you can have tactics with the image of the complete break, but this will involve a completely different temporality. It might mean that the energies you're releasing, the affective molecular and desiring unconscious energies you're releasing through through an action that seems small on the molar and the actual level will come back much later in a completely different temporality and therefore there bring a clean break to some system. And I think this is also, um, you know, the losing point about uh, May they uh, their the, the, the call that May 68 did not happen because you cannot understand historically, you cannot understand as per interests or as per, you know, macro structural phenomena history. You have to understand the minute molecular movement of desire that may be a graffiti on the street is what ultimately brings, uh, brought, sorry, the, the affective and the, the desiring energies which led to, to this kind of explosion. So yeah,
3: those are my thoughts. Thank you. The point that uh, Andrew brought up that tactics seeds a little bit too much to power. um, I was thinking that the other, to answer Harris's third question, the other thing that tactics maybe doesn't quite uh, work for. And this also goes back to the, the first point, which is what is Deleuze and Guitars relationship to tactics. Um, It brings to mind the conclusion of the Micropolitics and Segmentarity essay, which uh, to me is like probably the most chilling part of a thousand plateaus in a lot of ways, because it feels very familiar to the situation that exists today. And that's the creation of a fascist war machine. And the way that de Soto talks about how tactics rises out of uh, weakness and secrecy. In the same way, you look at the conditions that say created fascism in Germany after uh, World War I, this period of incredible anxiety, probably quite similar to what we have today. And the way that the German business community took on that anxiety, that weakness, and that that sort of secret weakness that people had and funneled it forward into this like war machine that eventually went from being reinvigorate the state to take over the world and destroy it. And so I think there's something that like, Criticisms of Deleuze and Guattari of like not quite, uh, I guess what's the word I'm looking for, not quite bringing bringing forth the revolution, I can understand it and I think I agree. I think the contribution that they have to tactics is that sense of caution. And it's something that I think even Deleuze began to see by the end of his life when he began to talk about the concept of the individual and the way that people are divided more and more, no longer as an individual person, but they're divided into these sort of separate, almost characters of themselves. And those characters are the things that capitalism coming into the 21st century would start to gobble up a little bit more, little bit by bit more and more with the introduction of the internet. That's
5: all I got. I,
2: I would like to say something as well. I mean, I, I don't know, I was, I was wondering, um, I was wondering if this is the perfect time to to create or to appropriate or to take advantage of of changes that are already happening. And like digital revolution, for example, that you just said, um, or various communities without borders, like it's our own uh, or money changing form or um, the pandemic that shapes uh, violently our relation to the environment, like it's a strange relationship anyway nowadays, as many have said already. And what these changes can do for us and how they can serve to build something new, to build and to shift completely. And I have sometimes the feeling that the state structures all over, they are gasping to maintain power at at this point. It's like they're, they're a swan song in a way, and in ways that soon might not even be effective because they, they will not have an object. And I know I sound like I would like the plan of taking over the structure, but this is not at all what I would like. I wonder how this, this structure these structures have failed us, will continue to fail us for sure. And whether it's time to think of new ones, um, not power structures, but new ways. I would not propose to, to forget revolution, to be honest. I, I would say to keep all possibilities open, to keep vigilant. But I keep thinking that things are being destroyed by themselves and maybe we could find here the opportunity, the crack to build something new. I don't know if this sounds a lot, very happy, but I I think it's a nice opportunity. It's a nice crack in the system. Uh,
1: I just wanted to build on uh, what Dana was saying. it, um, it just dawned on me the idea of, you know, why can't we as citizens be effective? Well, it sounds as though we can't because everything is either opaque or complex. Uh, but what if, the, what if it's not so complex? What if the idea, at least going back to the documentary that I saw, the idea is to exterminate people to, to take over their land for money and power. That's just flat out the kind of the thesis of the thing. So, what do we want to do as individuals? We want to live happy lives. What, what, are, what are the next steps? Is it family? Do I really need to work 120 hours a week to love my family? So, I think just at a basic level, maybe it's us rethinking the idea of family or friendships or thinking the idea of relations because. I was imposed an idea of profession or scholarship. I needed to be the smartest in the room, so I got the most degrees. Well, that doesn't make any sense because some of the most educated people are the most cruel, vicious, and destructive people. So what are we reaching for? And um, I pose that question because that might help us imagine a different type of scenario or future. So
0: for a moment, I think I'm going to play a persona. There's a funny thing when you write articles or books that suddenly there's a set of ideas that are bigger and more consistent than you yourself that propose a perspective that you yourself might not always agree with, but it's an important one to sort of contribute. So there's certainly this conceptual persona that is, you know, dark the that that um, I'm not sure I always feel or live, but but is out there. So I would say that, the entry of Dark Thelos into this conversation would be very much along the lines of, um, especially what Dana presented, which is um, there's a system that is currently tending, though it probably always tends towards self-destruction, which may be from anti-Oedipus or a thousand plateaus would just be lines of flight, or that it's always sort of spinning off elements that are beyond its control. And so the proposal would be to, in an ultra opportunistic way, try and tactically find every moment of self-destruction and turn it into a new opportunity for liberation, escape, or some other category. Um, Obviously, this is dangerous because it means sometimes working alongside people or ideas that we don't agree with. And it also means jettisoning old projects or ideas that maybe at one time had good faith or that were things that seemed sort of worthwhile. Um, And that it's risky in that it means putting effort into something that is currently contributing pain and suffering that might not pay off and could lead to a massive repression like jail, prison or death. But what it does mean is looking to something like a migrant crisis and saying, the answer here is not to come up with a quote unquote, sane immigration policy, nor is it to even necessarily create an alternative, which is still too strategic in its orientation and assumes that one can get a view, a vision or a space at a level or scale of the globe that one tactical practitioner maybe uh, never will. But it means, Increasing migration, pushing it. It's not, this, isn't, this wouldn't necessarily be accelerationist because accelerationism is very much a sort of self destruction for its own sake or a sort of nihilistic thing. And even within, let's say, Nick Land's imagination, it means pushing it towards some sort of revolutionary point, whether it means a singularity of robots controlling the world or this so called left version of it, which is some utopian welfare state that then is able to allot money in the right way and instead this just means hyper opportunism looking at all of the breakdowns and trying to find an opportunity within them so that means you know looking at the panics of children you know who now have access to the internet are creating new subcultures and say yeah that's great you know it doesn't mean that we need to reassert parental control in order to lock it down it means looking at the proliferation of genders that are happening that seem Absolutely wild and unpredictable, and say, we don't just need some of them, we need even more now. We need, we need a thousand, we need a trillion. And so in every moment, sort of pushing that forward, not because the collapse will lead to a complete breakdown, but this actual um, belief or confidence that the molecular will always be there, the, the molecular fabric will be enough to sort of hold us and to give up on these sort of old molar institutions. Um, yeah, that would be that proposal. Uh, on, on my best days, I'm very confident in it. Um, on other days, like when we're living through a global pandemic, I'm, I'm not always, but maybe that's an interesting uh, uh, intervention here. Harris, I, I see you're next.
8: Oh, I thought it was Brendan, but maybe it's left from before. Um, yeah, if I could uh, yeah, if I could comment on that uh, on that Andrew, I'd, uh, I'd ask again, you mentioned the pandemic. I'd also relate to what Jesse was saying about the environment, you know what what might pushing this for more might mean about plastic in the ocean or you know CO2 in the atmosphere. And then my question, you know if I had a question about this uh, in relating to Dana's comment, it would be where is the role of uh, creation in all this? You know, is, is the destruction advanced so that you can then build new new forms of uh, you know of living or sociality, um, or is it done so just in order to, to bring the collapse of the system and then you're trusting that the molecular will be there so then creation can take uh, can follow. So then our role then it, it's a different role, right? Our role is to destroy, and then it will be the role of others, even if our bodies have different subjectivities, to become creators. Um, And again, wondering if this is not slightly different from what Dana said uh, about uh, seeking the opportunities and seeking to build in them, to see where a gap is made and create something different, produce a radical alternative. Yeah.
0: Yeah, just to immediately build off that, because I think it's a very common sort of idea. And um, I think for, you know, not to always rely on DNG, but I think that that's a sort of common vernacular that we have here for D&G at least, and for many other perspectives, creation and destruction sort of come together. And so for me, I think the emphasis on destruction is not some idea to have some distilled pure destruction. I don't don't even think that's necessarily possible, but in maybe even like just a simple deconstructive move to try and flip the priority and the importance and how we evaluate and propose and say, what if instead of creation being the, the dominant term here, what if destruction is? And that I think that what's nice about our concepts for today is that it would be, I guess, a tactical destruction. Because I think that the questions that Chloe and that, that I have gotten about this sort of destruction orientation, destruction perspective, is people assume that it's a molar destruction, that it's some sort of, fascist Nazi project to systematically, from the top down, destroy the whole world. And that's neither how I think, nor am I capable to act, nor how I imagine other people should think and act either. And so, you know, when you ask about what the anarchist destruction of the world might be, right? I mean, we have plenty of models of this. Uh, They've historically done kidnappings and bombings and, you know, these other things that, you know, I'm I'm not here to advocate in a way that you know gets anyone in trouble or that that has anyone knocking on their door, but that like that that's how it's done. It's not done in a way that is just some like systematic genocide. Um, and if it did, then you know certainly we should never sign on. That's that's terrible. Um, but there is the sort of tactical approach that maybe is the thing that we're missing in a lot of these conversations. That is the element of 19th century anarchism that people almost never talk about. You know, it's the Galeanis of the world. It's the Russian nihilists. It's the Ottenpots and the people, you know, that that wave of people who were attacking monarchists and sovereigns. And I think that, you know, certainly that wasn't the solution. It's still maybe a little too directed and precise, but I think that this general orientation of like, in the process of challenging Uh, the world that exists. It's both on a conceptual level and then there's a practical level in which people need to do it. I think that that's sort of where we need to be. And it's not in a strategic way of destroying the whole world, but it's very much in this tactical way of intervening in the places that it counts. And of course it could mean founding a new university or creating a new community of people. But I think for so long, that is what the approach was. And it was to focus on the creativity and said, okay, we need a break from the old in order to create the new. And so for me, I think there's this interesting thing that happens if we flip it and say, well, if there's these things that we hate, we want to be partisans against them. Certainly we'll have to create things in the process, but it's not about you know what does the new university in exile look like? And it's more like okay, by necessity in this situation, we need to come together and create a life for ourselves and what have you. But it's going to be so ephemeral and it's to be so transitional. Let's not focus too much on the the, con- the elements that constitute it. Okay. I, I feel like I've um, I, I'm haranguing a, a bit at this point. So why don't we uh, keep going? Yeah, um, I see Gustavo, you have your hand as well as Jessica.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I, I just wanted to maybe riff off of uh, what you said before, but uh, just going back to um, the idea of uh, history, have we ever had uh, a society that's been truly equal? Or did did every person in a tribe or village really had their say in power and control? Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm just asking these this question because I'm thinking about, you know, now we have this... Uh, these new tools and these new tools can, we can probably sample everyone on the planet and have their answers to a question instantly, if we could, uh, before it was impossible. So just thinking about stretching our imagination to new possibilities. Why, why do we have, you know, restrictions on voting in America? Why can't we have children vote? Why can't we create an algorithm that says, you know, every baby between X and Y, they want uh, clean air, clean water, and affordable uh, resources, and then that skews a vote. Like, I think I'm, I'm actually with Andrew here. Why don't we figure out ways to, you know, take the systems to an edge and see it transform and see the little tears and. And, and maybe that will, you know, I'm thinking about bread now, maybe we're, you know, changing the shape of it, but it turns into something. So anyway.
7: Yeah, thanks everyone. And thanks, I'm trying to, I'm gonna try and uh, like tie some things together from the chat and people's awesome comments, um, because I'm thinking back to the first question Harris raised about like what, you know, this, what is perhaps tactical within Deleuze and Guattari and, what I am really interested in and what I think is coming up in like Andrew's work too brings us is that like, how does the, how do metaphors structure like our understanding of even something like creation and destruction? Like it, there's a shorthand where creation is more or plus and destruction equals minus or less. But like, I think that that is not the case, right? As many people have pointed out that um, these things are kind of, you know, in the case of, uh, uh, creation and destruction they're they're involved but also like i've been trying to think of destruction more in terms of negation or subtraction so a negation or like in the case of like the n minus 1 formula that Deleuze and Guattari talk about it's not just getting rid of something or letting it, it, it's it's like a, a subtraction of like a necessary determinant so it's 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 the whole i don't know if that makes sense so it's it's like um uh, subtracting from the metaphor or this like axiomatic bolt which holds things together in certain ways even around things like equality like to to Alfonso's or Gustavo's sorry um, comment is like why can't we all be equal well what does this metaphor of equality already suggest about symmetry and about like not just power but like symmetry at a material level where you know if we start looking at something like entropy or like how even the laws of conservation that so much of physics is based on is actually counterfactual to how like physical, physical processes work, which is, you know, I, I've been thinking so much about this because I'm trying to work through this question of energy transition, which historically has actually always been an addition. They've, there's never been a transition of energy. It's always just been an addition of new powers. Uh, several people write about this. And so when we say energy transition, you know, whether we're talking about big policy things or, you know, smaller localized, really cool stuff that's happening, it still kind of suggests this kind of additive process. And I think people have kind of commented this around a certain progressivism or this as if, you know, yeah, anyway, so I'm trying to think of thinking about this idea of destruction or breakage in terms of like a negation or a subtraction maybe raises a different style, like to Dana's point of like doing things where destruction takes on a different um, tone. And and, and for me, it's like, how do I, I, in my own work, if I'm just focusing on that, try and really subtract from the metaphors that structure the very way in which the questions I ask are kind of framed, right? Like how can I release that energy maybe in unexpected ways as Harris is kind of talking about without the guarantee of something happening in advance. And this is where I think speculation becomes key, which is a whole other topic that is both powerful in that like our whole financial systems are based on speculation uh, and and also showing again, that tension um, that it's not just inherently liberatory to speculate or make more categories of things, more derivatives, because this is also how contemporary um, capitalism works, but like how we, start to form a different relationship to those things that maybe involve some sort of subtraction or giving up or letting go are some things I've been playing with. So again, many ideas wrapped up uh, in, in that. So thanks
5: for listening.
1: I, I just wanted to be very quick here. Um, uh, sorry, I wanted to be very quick. You know, when we talk about uh, contemporary society, we really don't know how it works at uh, just even at an algorithmic level. When did we see power to a com- computer to tell us what to do? I mean, that to me is a basic, huge question. And when did the people vote for this? So when you talk about changes, that was changed on us like plastic. Hey, guess what? Plastic is awesome but why do we still pollute and destroy the planet? I thought we were smarter than that. Who's making money? I think at, at some level, we, we know what to do, but we're, we're not uh, given the authority to solve the problem because we have to protect those that made the initial investment. But aren't we the real investment? Who cares about plastic? Like I, I think at some level, You know, I I hear all these strategies and I'm going, yeah, I really want to do something. But then even if I say I want to do it, and if I say the truth, then, you know, like, you know, every great thinker, they off you. So, you know, I don't want to be like the, you know, I don't want to be that person that says don't do it. But maybe let's go back to what Andrew was saying. Let's ask the more precise questions. And let's, let's have accountability on the answers because this question isn't, um, you know, this isn't a complex question. I, I, I would argue it's a complicated question. We have computers that can go through the answer and figure out who is, go- what's going on, but we veil our problems with, it's so impossible, we can never solve it. I don't believe that. Yeah, I think one of the things that this
0: tactical strategic sort of um, distinction does is it reveals one approach that I really like, but it also obscures some of the historical dimensions. So I want to sort of mention both of those. So, one thing that it does make really helpful is it critiques the idea of what I call blueprinting, which is getting the idea of some sort of ideal society, state, whatever, and thinks that it's just a question of like calculating or making it happen or logistics or engineering in order to sort of get us there. Um, I don't like blueprinting. And so I think the tactical approach opposes the blueprinting of strategy. I think there are limitations because it's almost sort of like uh, living hand to mouth, like because, You're basically exceeding the territory of being able to enact, um, let's say, durable futures. But I'm not particularly persuaded the idea of needing to enact a durable future, um, though there there are certain problems like climate change that I think sort of make that a little bit difficult or challenging. right? but i think the historical dimension of this is kind of curious and interesting too like it's 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 hard to draw generalizations and i'm sure if there was a historian here they'd be able to help correct me on some of this but you know modern statistics as we know it was more or less invented in the 17th century by states that's where they're, they're called statistics because state comes through it and it created a whole new way of governing in which it created a form of knowledge and then ultimately reason that it consolidated within a science of government about looking at a variety of different material inputs, the population being one of them, but also things like producing corn or other agricultural good and you know, health, and then balancing them, using numbers in order to try and optimize. And in some ways it's been very effective. You know? um, they've been able to, in many like, really advanced countries like the US, um, diminish, uh, hunger, they've been able to increase lifespan. You know, they're like things that it can do. I don't want to say it doesn't do anything. Um, but there are costs that come with it as well. And I would think most of the people here think that those costs are unreasonable and we don't want them. Um, but you know, the alternative isn't certainly to get rid of numbers, you know, I don't, I don't think that's even sort of humanly possible. We, we think in terms of numbers. It's a pretty basic thing in the way in which humans think and see and interact with the world. Um, and so, and, and, nor am I in the sort of blueprinting idea where I can sort of will things on humanity's having or not having certain ideas and sort of abolishing them completely. And so, I think that there's a sort of interesting situation where we find ourselves where it's just like what does it mean to really give up on blueprinting completely what does it mean to really approach things tactically especially when you see some of the problems in such a big historical framework of something like statistics led to modern biopower which puts us in this sort of impossible position where it's very difficult for people to um, survive outside society or the state as it were Um, which is in part one reason why don't align myself with primitivism, even though I think it has a lot of interesting ideas. But I think then that allows us to think of something like primitivism more as a thought experiment and more than, than a political prescription, where the primitivists will remind us that, you know, gendered division of society, as we sort of know it, is probably a sort of uh Neolithic invention. Like before humans started tool use in the way that we have now and settled agriculture, there's probably not a gendered division in the way that we have it now. Um, that, uh, other questions or problems that come with domestication are large ones, like perhaps sovereignty, which is to say that have political representation, where there's someone who's in charge and control of others, is probably something that came with domestication as well. And so if we're to not be primitivists, like, like what would it even mean to be a tactical primitivist? I'm not sure. Maybe that earth liberation or something or the tactical primitivist bunch. but, you know, like, like if we can't be tactical primitivists, then what does it mean knowing this information? Knowing that humans did once live and maybe small of humans did live in this way, what does it mean tactically? And I think that the proposal that we get from the post-structuralist anarchists maybe aren't enough for us that is perhaps a window into it where they want to live singular lives. So say it's not to come up with the policy proposal for other people to follow. In fact, it's the radical opposite, to live your life in a way that no one else could ever live because yours is so different, yours is so unique, yours is so yourself. Um, like I've mentioned in our last session, um, unimitable. Someone could not reproduce it because it is so you, it can't be someone else. Um, unique, yeah, as, as was suggested in, in the chat. Um, obviously, know strategists will never like this they hate people who are so unique and so different and are so stylish let's say that no one else is like them but that's at least one proposal of a way through to live a life that is so different that is so um you know this is the tradition of the anarchists who are called the, you know the wild so-and-so or you know, the people who had um, such flourish or some unique, almost mad approach to the world that they were different, so different that perhaps didn't even fit it, you know? And that's, that's one solution. And, you know, maybe that's where art and artists come back into because we have so many examples of artists or artists like people who've sort of lived in this sort of fashion too. Um, Certainly this doesn't solve the problem of climate change, but maybe it does begin this sort of mutation or transformation that gets us to this place outside of the blueprint, outside of mass society, outside of uh, so many other things.
2: I love this approach, Andrew. It made me smile. And um, Corey saying like one becomes a singularity or maybe a multiplicity, because we are all also many, many, many things, and this uniqueness does not mean one thing. Or, um, um you know something that ha- that continues to 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 yes exactly Corey yeah I love this approach
7: yeah I can't help but think here and maybe because I was reading um, some other of Harris's work and, and thinking back to this kind of question of maybe a fe- intersectional feminism of um, like a situated knowledge, which, you know, introduced by Haraway, but I think that it's been kind of pushed in certain ways by interesting thinkers like Patricia Reed, who's also an artist and designer, um, maybe a cousin, she's a part of the you know, feminist collection, so, or collective, so maybe a cousin to some accelerationists, but we can uh, leave that open for debate right now. But um, there, she, she thinks about situated knowledge in really interesting, I think, tactical way in the sense of like, situated like being an individual or being an I is not static, it's not fixed. And so your perspective on things is not fixed. And I try and get this with students who are, you know, like to push back against this idea that like this is my opinion and it matters and it's mine and therefore it's good and true, you know, which is also what racists say. So how do you like this this identity politics, you know, where it becomes like so formed around a certain situated perspective or embodied perspective where it kind of loses kind of out on this what I think Haraway is saying which was is, is a feminist objectivity is always partial like it, it can't it's always a partial perspective it's not static it shifts based on the relations that one enters into and so Patricia Reed asks about I think what Andrew is bringing up earlier like what is the potential for cosmological resituation? like not just a you know an exit from the state or from capital but this kind of more cosmological shift is it possible what would that look like and she talks about, you know, how the situatedness of all thought always exceeds the poten- always has the potential to exceed its own situatedness. And that is based on the one, the encounters, and especially I think non-normative encounters that one has. And so with these questions around, you know, like singularities or individuals, I think that and I think many of us probably have that caveat in there that there is no I so to speak, or that the eye is a a kind of a terminal or process, you know, uh, as Guattari might have it, like a a terminal for subjectification that like is is based on this more multifaceted, um, uh, shifting kind of uh, process uh, of production that involves human and non-human kinds of assemblages. And so, yeah, I'm just thinking here back to Harris's talk around, and maybe this is another tactical question around the situatedness of thought, but then letting go of the idea that that is my thought and it therefore, you know, that is my, like my property, my own, like owning these things to kind of get into these other, um, you know, moves towards divestment or destruction, but of, of a certain kind of sense of individualism, not the individual
5: per se, but like a, a certain kind of like determination of the individual. Yeah, thanks.
1: Uh, I just wanted to uh, th- thank you, Jesse, about uh, you talking about that. And I think uh, uh, building on um, what Andrew was saying, uh, the idea of um, kind of individuality or hyper individuality, uh, you know, I, I go back to the idea of, you know, uh, human organization. Like, why did we put so much investment? in institutions like uh you know why religion and uh, you know why did the first humans go to religion and not nature like i'm just going back to that to, to not not to um not to put us off a certain thread but just to say that you know there is a science and science has um uh basically been also a destroyer of lives science can become political at some level, as we've seen in, in genocide or in certain parts of uh, you know economic pushes. So, but like for this group, I think of this group as a think tank. So as a think tank, I go, well, what are the major problems that we need to deal with? And for hyper-individuality, if we can't do it, if we can't imagine it as a species and we're still primitive, you know, what are the contemporary tools or ideologies that we can just implement like uh, you know uh like here's a thought so why don't we andrew i'd uh, like to said okay maybe we can have hyper individuality and currency be interconnected as just a concept well then that would encourage everyone to to be as individual but then it would also give value to a whole instead of the idea that um we're 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 basically defined by the idea of art or the idea of philosophy or engineering. We need new definitions. So I'm just thinking about how we can just open the door because language for me is also limiting. Um, So maybe it's the visual, audio, tactile, new definitions of how we should think about information or data. So anyway, oh, thanks Andrew.
8: Yeah, just going back to what Jesse said. Uh, thank you, Jesse. I, I thought it was wonderful, and specifically on the on the keeping the situated, but also letting go, not keeping this kind of um, this possessive model. That uh, this is my, this is uh, staking out a territory. This is my positionality, and I keep this. And as an identity, this is the knowledge that I own and produce. Um, there's a wonderful quote by Deleuze, I'm not sure where it comes from, perhaps uh, perhaps others can help me with this, but to give um, what can only be stolen. You know, I think it's uh, connecting with friendship, to sort of give what can only be stolen. And for me, this is exactly what, what Andrew typed in the chat about uh, how they see art the production of affective energies and, uh, and sort of uh, libidinal connections which exceed their context of, uh, of production and uh, therefore they kind of spread and can inspire and feed into other assemblages and therefore produce other intensities. And this is indeed the role of art. This is indeed the role, but it, also in art in a more uh, in a broader definition. Also not, not art only as artistic production, but the art of living. Uh, and here we come also to Foucault's uh, last decade. To make you know your life, your very existence into an art, and turning to a discussion uh, you know two weeks ago, this is how I see the text about Esther Brown, you know, in uh, in contrast to to proposal to write and therefore to produce this kind of art, which uh, can exceed its context. Esther Brown's uh, art of living never wrote a text, never wrote a song, never produced something, but nevertheless produced energies that a century later. Um, you know, Hartman took and put in this in this text, and we're still talking about the intensity survives. And we might think about the refusal of work, as per Esther Brown. So this kind of, uh, of giving, of starting from something situated, but, uh, but sort of, uh, you know, uh, desubjugating as you do this, le- letting go of your subjectivity, and therefore giving what can only be stolen because it was never yours in the first place, letting go of possessiveness, is the kind of model that I would see connected to, to living a singular life, a life with some in itself. Thank you. Wow,
0: we've had such a stimulating conversation. It, time's about up, so I just wanted to make sure that anyone who hasn't contributed anything lately and maybe still has something to say is given some time to do that. Uh, do we have any takers? No, not for now. Uh, Very briefly, I mean, I'm going to sort of, you know, keep pitching ideas to people to join us and present, but, um, you know, if we don't get the Peruvians in a couple weeks, I was thinking, uh, we've been talking about really doing the fennel, so it seems time to finally, you know, um, do our fennel reading. Um, Probably something psychological, because I think that uh, um psychology is the thing that most directly sort of attaches to, to what we're talking about here. Um, hopefully, something that involves some of the practical dimensions too, either like his more sort of experiential stuff like we get in Black Skin White Masks, or maybe his description of um, uh, psychiatric practice, which he was doing in a sort of social psychology critique, critique of colonialism um, sort of way. Um, but if people have any other ideas or any other proposals or if people want to present on the funnel, please be in touch. Uh, it's always wonderful when we have people uh, pre- presenting the texts. I think it sort of keeps pushing forward this singular approach to ideas that we've been talking about for a few weeks now, where it's not like there's one perspective that needs to be sort of progressed here. We're not here to agree, you know. S- certainly we're not here to sort of come to disagreement either. Um, but it's that we're looking for everyone to uh, sort of contribute something new and keep pushing things forward and just see where the experiment uh, continues to take us. Um, So yeah, be in touch. And then also if you wanna help me on the committee for putting together publication, uh, be in touch too. Um, Other than that, maybe we'll just call it a day. Thank you so much, everyone. And it it was great seeing everybody.
2: Thank you so much. It was so nice to see you again.
1: Thank you, Harry. Thank you, Harris. thank you, everyone.
0: Thank you for joining Quiver. For more, visit our website at ourquiver.org, where you can RSVP for future events and see readings. We also ask you to subscribe while you're there to
1: our newsletter. Till later, Quiver.